Hi, uh, my name is Doug Lyman. I'm the director and the producer of The Born Identity. I guess uh, starting right off the bat, uh, you'll notice we didn't do the traditional universal music against the advice of our excellent mixers, uh, Bob Beamer and Scott Milan, who felt that it's very tricky uh, to pull out that music because that music actually tells people in the theater to shut up and pay attention to your movie, and they were definitely right when I went and saw the film on 42nd Street. This image here was actually from my very original storyboards, uh, always, you know, deep under the water looking up at uh, Bourne's body floating. We ended up not shooting it, but uh, ILM created that uh, from scratch in, in a computer. Most of these shots, we, we couldn't afford to shoot in a tank, so we're shooting in Imperia, Italy, for the most part tied up to the dock, and we also had a, a barge sort of out in the harbor. Um, and we added rain on the spot, and then digitally, uh, Peter Donan and his excellent effects staff added most of the storm that you're seeing. You know, especially coming up here, I mean, this is a boat tied to the dock, and, and we're adding all of the sea that's, that's behind the fishermen that's not really there. But it's amazing what... Uh, with digital effects, what you can do with people just tied up. I mean, that body is actually also just next to the dock with a motorboat driving along, um, creating the, the wakes around it. One of the fun challenges of this movie was, you know, we were based in Paris, but you know, we were having to have casting offices in different parts of the world, like a casting office in Rome, to cast the actors for this sequence. You know, that's Orso uh, Maria Garini, who uh, is one of the great Italian actors, and. It, it was definitely fun to direct people speaking a language you don't understand and, and trusting them that they're actually, you know, saying the lines. And, you know, you're really, you're really directing from a very emotional place. This sequence is uh, all shot on a soundstage in Paris. Actually, not even a soundstage, but, but a warehouse. Um, and the, the set's on a gimbal. And a lot of this actually isn't with Matt Damon. Obviously, that's not Matt Damon. Uh, but uh, this great uh, effects company in Paris called Spadassini um, created a, a rubber mold of Matt. And we use that not only for doing the bullet shots, but even for shots like this. Because they actually like a shot like that. That's not really Matt. Um, where Matt lost a tremendous amount of weight to do this movie, and not actually didn't lose so much weight. He 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 got himself physically into shape um, for about four or five months. I mean, he was on a strict no pizza, no beer, um, nothing fun to eat, just you know like bland white meat chicken, and boxing every day, and doing his collie work, and working with his trainer Mike Torsha. Um, really, you know, I I thought I w I thought I should get in shape and. and 
work out with him and with Franca, but I only actually survived one workout. I mean, it really was quite grueling. Um, but one great thing for Matt was because Spadassini made a mold of his body when he was, you know, at his most fit, we were able to continue to use that mold for shots of him after we, you know, there was a point in which he, he sort of went off that regimen and, and became more normal. For those of you who know the book, uh, the Swiss bank account number actually used to be a piece of microfilm in, in the hip. And, uh, you know, I'm not one for sort of just gratuitous gadgets, but this is something I, I felt we should modernize. I mean, microfilm doesn't even exist anymore in the library. Probably most of you listening to this video never even used a microfish machine. It just shows the, the generational difference, you know. And, I always thought of myself as being the younger generation, but microfilm is probably something that separates us. You know, the origin of The Born Identity, it was a book that I had fallen in love with when I was in high school. I'd reread it uh, around the time I was finishing Swingers and thought, you know, wow, this really would be a, a great movie. And um, Swingers opened so many doors for me, and people were saying, you know, what movie do you want to do next? And I said, well, you know, there's this book I want to do, The, the Born Identity. And obviously, you know, Swingers came out five years ago, so it wasn't as easy as just saying I want to do the book, The Born Identity. It, it, it took me two years to secure the rights to the book and then um, another year developing the screenplay, and then two years of production. And uh, Treadstone actually is not from the book. This is based on my father's uh, memoirs, his autobiography called Lawyer, and he ran the uh, Iran-Contra investigation. Uh, those of you probably you know, would remember his interrogation of Oliver North. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of Oliver North and Chris Cooper. In fact, the entire Treadstone operation, uh, you know, the name is taken from the book, but the actual nuts and bolts of it are, are, are taken from my, my father's memoirs and from my conversations with him about uh, what was going on at the NSA um, under Ronald Reagan. And again, you know, some of those shots you just saw there, we, we did actually go out on the boat with Matt and took it out to sea one day and, and did some filming. This is second unit helicopter. This shot actually, everybody thought wouldn't work. I'm actually shooting Matt on the dock. Um, that's a piece of, that crane thing on the, on the right side of the frame you just saw was actually something on the dock, but you, you, know, you obviously can't tell. And uh, this is, is soundstage work. If you want to eat, you better get in there. You know, based on these charts, I, I think I may have been closer to the coast. What's this? You like these nuts? So it starts to come back, eh? No, it doesn't start to come back. The knot's like everything else. I just found the rope and I did it. 
Same way I can, I can read, I can write, I can add, subtract, I can make coffee, I can shuffle cards, I can set up a yes, chessboard. Yes, yes, it will come back. I mean, no, it's not coming back, goddammit, that's the point. I'm down here looking through this, all this shit for two weeks I'm down here. It's not working, I don't even know what to look for. You need to rest. It will come back. What if it doesn't come back? We get in there tomorrow, I, I don't even have a name. Not much, but it should get you to Switzerland. Thank you. And this is all Imperia, Italy. That harbor that you're seeing is also where we filmed all of that water stuff from the beginning. So you can see it's a very calm place that we had to add the rain and the storm to. Sar Klein, my editor, you know, who, who's also Academy Award nominee, like Matt, had this vision for me uh, for this film that that Bourne should disappear early on, um, just as sort of a little trait. So right here, see, he's gone. Most people miss that, and you'd think that that's a uh, digital effect, uh, but that's not. We actually did that in camera. Because um, there are a lot of digital effects in this movie, like, you know, the tunnel wall that's going behind him. You know, we're not actually on a train. We're sitting on a stage, but, you know, again, Peter Donan's crew put the tunnel there. And, and uh... Now here we are in Paris at uh, Garde Nord. Uh, it's definitely, it was our most expensive location uh, for the whole movie. Those are actually my footsteps. The idea was he was supposed to be looking at a, a virgin field of snow, but I, I needed to do something and ended up, you know, I, there was no reason for me to get mad at because when we reframed the shot, all of a sudden my footsteps were in it. And, you know, really couldn't get mad at anybody else. Um, this actually is an interesting combination of stage work and location. This is location in Prague. And this is on a soundstage in Paris. This, for me, was one of the most critical performances for Matt and needed to be done in a very controlled environment with a very long lens, especially this moment right here that's about to happen, where you know, there's that, just that, it's such a subtle, small change that happens, um, and obviously now we're back to Prague, and, and this bigger stuff is, um, is the location, but, you know, this, this for me was first and, and foremost a, a drama, and secondly an action film, and those, those little moments were extremely important to me. And this is uh, Adewale. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. You may, you, a lot of you may know him from Oz. You know, really a, a phenomenal actor. And this notion for the, you know, 
those of you who know the book know that I, I pretty much jettisoned, uh, I mean, everything from the book except the premise, um, you know, not only to modernize it, but to, you know, bring it in line with, with my politics, which are, you know, definitely left of center. And in this case, you know, I wanted to create a backstory for the film that really was, you know, something that talked about America's foreign policy. And, you know, in this case, it's about a, a small African nation, but that's, you know, could be an allegory for South America or even the Middle East at this point. Obviously, uh, in today's climate, that's on people's minds. But, you know, this was on my mind, you know, long before September 11th and was something that, you know, I, I wanted to sort of work into the film without cramming my political beliefs down uh, people's throats. So, you know, you can take it or not take it. I was recalling a conversation we had some time ago talking about Treadstone. I seem to remember the Quantawambosi's name might have... I really was very fortunate to be able to work with Brian Cox sure and, and Chris Cooper. You know, that's one of the, the huge luxuries of doing a studio film versus uh, Swingers and Go, is that on my earlier films, you know, we'd say, well, we need somebody like Brian Cox, or we need somebody like Chris Cooper. You know, that's how I would have gone about casting this scene, and... On Born Identity, you know, I started off saying to Joseph Middleton, who, who was my casting director on, on Go and who worked on this film with me, you know, we need somebody like Chris Cooper and we need somebody like Brian Cox. And he just said, well, well, what about Chris Cooper and Brian Cox? And your big Universal Pictures movie, you actually can get those people. And it turned out that uh, not only did I get the people who I actually wrote the roles for, but they obviously did an amazing job and... and they were really great to work with, and, and those guys worked under really tough circumstances because Tony Gilroy, who uh, wrote the script, I mean, I wrote the script with first with Blake Heron, and then Tony Gilroy came in, and Tony, you know, is an amazing writer, and, and probably where he shines most is when he was writing uh, Chris Cooper and, and Brian Cox. Basically, anything, anytime he was writing Chris Cooper, he could do no wrong, and he wrote so many great scenes with Chris Cooper that... I ended up, you know, sort of insisting on filming them all just because I couldn't stare at a good scene and have a good actor on the set and not film it. So I uh, shot more than I knew we could use, so we had to shoot three of their scenes a day for five days. Brian and Chris really were troopers. I mean, we'd finish a scene, and we'd be like, all right, everybody take a two-minute break, and then we'd have to be back in there blocking the next scene. This bank is a combination of uh, shooting the lobby and the Sorbonne, and then this is a set that we built in Prague. Uh, you know, we were based in Paris with a completely French crew, um, and then we went to Prague to build our sets because it was uh, more inexpensive to shoot there. And, you know, my, my crew was phenomenal. It was my first time working overseas. I, I'd done some commercials overseas, but first time doing a feature overseas, and I found the French crew to, to be so supportive and, and an environment where, you know, they just loved movies. Um, so this is a set that Dan Vell created, a production designer, um, who, again, like when I talk about casting, I said, you know, I want production designer like the guy who did Nikita, La Femme Nikita. And, you know, they're like, well, what about the guy who did La Femme Nikita? Um, so that's Dan Vell and... Um, 
I worked with Oliver Wood on the cinematography. Uh, those of you who know my work know that I, I, my prior films I had DP'd myself. Um, and I, I really learned a tremendous amount working with Oliver. You know, I continued to operate the camera to keep that personal relationship with the actors. Um, but, you know, given just the sheer workload of having two crews shooting simultaneously um, and the fact that we were working on the script, you know, just the, the logistics of, of a film that's shooting in seven countries, um, it was great to have a partner um, in, in the cinematography domain. And, And this box with the money really was, for me, the defining image for the movie. It's actually uh, it's one of the first things I did when the uh, studio greenlit the movie was I sent my assistant out with a bunch of whatever I could find in my wallet from different travels I'd done around the world and gave them all these different currencies and made them color Xerox them and create just my own personal stack of, of money from lots of different countries just as, as sort of a prop for myself. You know, I should talk a little bit more about the uh, cinematography. You know, I, I worked with Oliver Wood. Um, I was also fortunate to be able to work with Don Burgess and uh, Danny Mandel, and that really was incredible to work with these, you know, three sort of world-class uh, cinematographers, you know, especially given my own personal interest and hands-on attitude towards cinematography. Um, you know, they really were great collaborations. You know, I also had started talking about the French crew, um, who, you know, the thing that was incredible about working um, in France is that, you know, everybody on the crew loves movies. It's, it's not a job to any of them. They really have a personal uh, interest and stake in the fact that you're making a good movie, and when we'd issue new pages, the, you know, everybody would have opinions. Yes, in Paris. Do you have the number for a Jason Bourne? Yes, sir. Would you like me to connect you? Yes, please. This is 46990. My uh, best boy grip, uh, Jean-Pierre Deschamps, was a critical component to the photography of the movie. And, you know, Michael Manot, who... Uh, was the gaffer was a really critical component to to how the the film looked and you know my first ad luke etienne who first and foremost you know first ad's are there to sort of wrangle the crew into shape but but luke was, was very passionate about the movie and the script and the story and the performances uh so it really was a great experience as an american filmmaker to go there and be surrounded by these people who are passionate about movies The sequence you just saw we, was all filmed in Prague, uh, dressed to look like Zurich. Um, that was a little bit of a stunt with those trams. I'm 
Bourne is just very calm in situations where the rest of us might not be, and that's just like a little throwaway thing. And obviously now, perfect opportunity to talk about the amazing Franca Patente. There is a character Marie in the novel, but you know she's an economist from Canada. You know, I'd seen Run Lola Run, and I was like, you know, it's a girl like that. That, that Matt Damon should meet, you know, somebody who's who doesn't feel so familiar to American audiences. Because to me, one of the things about this story is it's very much The Wizard of Oz, and Jason Bourne is trying to get home, and he's trying to get home the entire movie, and, you know, he eventually has to realize that Marie is home, and he was home all along. He just had to realize it. And that to me is like Dorothy who's going down the yellow brick road and she could have just clicked her, her shoes any time and she didn't realize that home was so close. Red bag, the red bag, stop right there. Put your hands up. Obviously, we should talk about the fight sequences. You know, at this point, you've had the amazing sequence in the park, and now Matt just you know, kicks some butt here. Uh, Nick Powell uh, was my uh, stunt coordinator on this. He was so much more than a straight stunt coordinator. I mean, he, he really was was a visionary for the stunts, and in most ways, directed them. He really understood. Um, not only how to physically have the actors do what they need to do, but he really understood where the camera should be to best pull that off. And, you know, as an example of how really involved Nick Powell was, you know, I, I invited him to the editing room in L.A. to actually work on the edits of the fights, which is very unusual. Um, you know, most stunt coordinators, you know, they sort of block the physical action and move on. And, and, and Nick, you know, he's got a, a world-class reputation and... and he definitely uh, demonstrated to me why he's, he's held in such high regard. So something that really was very important to me that we just passed, um, Matt grabbing the walkie-talkie and grabbing the map off the wall. It was my vision from the beginning for this movie to create a character who, when the pressure heated up, he got calm and he used his brain instead of his muscles. And that's, you know, when I first talked to Matt Damon, because, you know, Matt is not somebody who's known for doing action movies. I said, you know, our action's gonna be a little bit different because, you know, people use the bandy around the term thinking man's action movie, which I don't, you know, really, yeah, I, I, you know, seems like a bunch of semantics to me. But the one thing I will say about our action is that it's, it's character driven. And it was very fun for me to think of ways for Matt to sort of get calm and, and think about his problems. You know, something like grabbing the map off the wall is the kind of example of, you know, there were you know, a number of very smart people who were helping me on this movie, and we would sit around and brainstorm and take two weeks for, you know, four of us to figure out something for Jason Bourne to figure out in two seconds, like grab the map off the wall. That, in hindsight, seems like a simple thing to think of, but it really took some time for us to think of all those details or grabbing the walkie-talkie. Um, that shot that you just saw, again, was, you know, my idea of, of how I wanted to do the action where it just feels very simple and natural um, because to Jason Bourne, it's, 
it's no big deal. You know, that, that's part of the, the character-defining aspects of the action in this movie, that Jason Moore's certainly not happy about the skills he has. Um, he doesn't know why he has them. And we don't dwell on it. This is not a, a self-indulgent movie. You don't see Matt Damon talking about his amnesia very often. Uh, you don't see him moping a lot in this film. And, you know, as an example, we made a bold choice when I shot this sequence that when Jason Bourne came down off the wall, the obvious thing to do would have been to have him stop, turn around, and look up at the wall and react to what he just did. And we said that that is not Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne, you know, other movies would do that, but Jason Bourne is much more matter-of-fact about it. This Gabriel Mann, who's playing Zorn, who is a phenomenal actor, and I was given access to such amazing talent for playing the secondary roles. I mean, he cleaned out the box, left the gun. What does that mean? I said I don't know. I liked it better when I thought he was dead. The interesting thing about this sequence was we were shooting in Prague in January and February, and it is cold there. And Matt, we, we actually wardrobed Matt when we were in Paris in October. And, you know, the sweater seemed like a good idea back then that he would dump his jacket to change his look and, again, not call a lot of attention to it, just have him do it. But Matt was really cold. Actually, most of this is ADR because, you know, the original production sound, you know, he said, good morning, like that. Like, he, he just, there were certain sounds he couldn't make with his mouth. I mean, he sounded like a boxer. And we would heat him up between takes and put those little, you know, sort of chemical heat packs on his face. And we also had this propane torch thing on the side of the set. But... It didn't work. I mean, we ended up having to ADR him because, you know, his whole thing was talking like that. Now, this scene, uh, you know, those of you who are familiar with my previous work know that I, I've always been a sort of fan of the handheld camera, and I was trying to sort of evolve with this movie. And this amazing Czech Steadicam operator, Yardis Sedina, we developed a style. I don't know if you could do this, is Steadicam, but the camera is moving in a way that has an energy that uh, my handheld work, you know, I was always a fan of handheld work because it, it put an energy into the cinematography. and. With Bourne, I wanted to see if it was possible to sort of be a little bit more sophisticated with the camera work, but still keep that energy. And, and Yarda and I developed a technique for working with a steady cam 
it was you know exactly what I was looking for and it was a little bit rough with Yarda in the beginning because these people take pride in their craft and I'm asking him to do things that go against all of his his training and his teaching and one of the techniques I used for doing the steady cam, and you'll see it's mostly within the treadstone sequences that I did this, was I would not let Yarda see the rehearsal. And so he wouldn't know who was going to speak. Also because English isn't his first language, so it would be a little bit harder on him in the first place. So he wouldn't know who was going to speak. And so he'd always be a little bit late, and it was exactly the kind of edge that I wanted to give to the photography. And then after the first one or two times we'd done the scene, you know, where Yarda all of a sudden could anticipate because he figured out what was going on, I would then add extra challenges for him and, and make him start the scene with the camera, you know, I'd make him start in the other room and yell action. He'd have to sort of hustle in with the camera and try to catch up, and eventually we developed a style where he could do that on his own, um, and it, it's definitely a style of, of photography that I, I plan on continuing to explore. This sequence, uh, you know, I was talking about cold out, you know, by the car where he, Matt, first gives Franca the money. This scene we're actually shooting in the Czech Siberia, but while Matt in the other sequence was the one suffering, you know, because I had a huge, heavy North Face jacket on and a big hat, you know, like a Russian hat, and Matt was in a sweater. In this sequence, Matt's in a nice heated car, and I'm actually outside this car on a trailer filming in Czech Siberia where negative 20 degrees and then they're going 50 miles an hour so you can imagine what the wind chill was like. We went through three cameras shooting the sequence where we had a Panavision and that eventually got too cold and it literally just stopped working. We went back to my trusted Aton which you know always insist on having and even that froze up and we ended up using our Airy which was our second unit camera and yeah, that thing is German made and you know can survive anything and it survived the Czech Siberia. Keep going. Really, if you want, please keep talking. One of the things about doing a movie that's PG thirteen is that you only get to use the F word uh, once or twice. And is actually a very helpful word. And as we were rehearsing, you know, there were many scenes where we realized using the F word would help an actor with a moment. But I only felt like I could use it once. And first I gave it to Franca. Um, and then eventually I uh, decided that no, Matt should get the F word because he needed it for this scene. But it, w it was interesting how, this, how the F word sort of got moved around from scene to scene because we're only going to get to use it once in the entire movie. Another thing in terms of sort of being a, a cleaner movie, you'll notice that nobody's smoking in this movie, which is just a personal thing of mine, ironic coming from the director of Swingers, but it's actually because of Swingers. Um, I started to feel 
that I, as a filmmaker, needed to take a little bit of responsibility in terms of, of the kinds of role models that I'd be putting forward. And, you know, I didn't want to be part of encouraging uh, any more teenagers to start smoking. So even though this film is set in Europe, where literally everybody, including our French Steadicam operator, was who would smoke while he was operating the Steadicam, I mean, there was smoking everywhere, but it was never actually uh, uh, on film. Is it a game? Is it warning us? Is it a threat? Sir, look at this. Now, the other uh, great thing uh, about doing all these Treadstone scenes is, is in addition to Gabe Mann, I got to work with uh, Josh Hamilton, uh, who many of you will recognize, um, and also Walton Goggins, uh, who's, who's in the room right behind them. Here, here comes Walton now, um, who are both just amazing young actors. Again, people who should be playing the leads in films, and it, it's you know such a great luxury you know, when you're doing a studio film that you get to to work with talent of this caliber. And one of the fun things, you know, there's so many scenes that take place in this room, which you know my production designer Dan Vale envisioned as being, you know, as opposed to the high-tech plasma screen, you know, custom-built CIA space that you would see possibly in a film like Enemy of the State was that this was their conference room, and that's why those cables are hanging down, that they've just been adding more and more computers to. Again, you know, it captures the bureaucratic feeling of the NSA, which is what I had become exposed to through my father's memoirs and through, you know, discussions with my father about the NSA, about how the world of espionage is really quite bureaucratic. And speaking of my father's memoirs and Julia Stiles, who... You know, a lot of people would question why, you know, an actress of such huge stature like Gabe Mann or Josh or Walton would be in a small role. Um, and she really was on, on their level when we started this film. And then she had some films that broke out and made her bigger star. And there was some concern that, you know, would be distracting. But I, you know, I wanted to have an actress who was significant enough that even though the role is very small, you would pay attention to it and it would bring some of the politics that are contained in this film a little bit further forward. And the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching the sidelines and looking for an exit. I see the exit sign too, I'm not worried. I mean, you were shot. People do all kinds of weird and amazing stuff when they're scared. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. This monologue that Matt gives in this scene, I think was the reason that uh, Matt Damon chose to do the movie. Um, this is you know, something that Tony Gilroy uh, crafted in his first draft and both Matt and I fell in love with. You know, he really captured the essence of the character, and we actually played with a lot of different ways for Matt to say that monologue, which were all great, and it was one of the challenges was to figure out, okay, well, you only get to put one in the film, um, and this is the, uh, that's the only time you see uh, Matt sleep in the movie, you know, where he gets to be peaceful, and that's not unintentional.
And here we are on the banks of the Seine. We're only a few blocks from where I lived in Paris while we were doing this film. You know, we're obviously trying to make the most of Paris. I think it's you know, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, but not trying to, probably this, this shot is like my one kind of, okay, we're in Paris and we're gonna show you we're in Paris. Um, and the rest of the movie, I throw it away. Um, because I didn't want to go into this film the way so many Americans go to Paris and just shoot the most beautiful places in the city and it feels very touristy. Um, and part of working with a French crew and living in Paris was that I got to know the city the way a local would know the city. And these people would, again, as I said, the crew, they're all filmmakers. And they all really care about the movie. And, the, and, you know, they would introduce me to neighborhoods like Belleville. or uh, This is one of the ritzier neighborhoods in Paris in the uh, 16th arrondissement. Again, you know, so I, I say that arrondissement pretty well. Uh, I had learned French in high school and did a little bit in college. And pretty early on, I decided that it would be more effective for me to speak French with the crew than to speak English because it, when you speak French, if there's something not understood, you're the one not understanding it and you know it. Whereas if you speak English, you know, they'll, out of a sign of respect, they'll mostly oh, say God, yes. Funny like they understood, and maybe they didn't. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for the ride. Anytime. Well, you could come up, and you can, or you could wait here. I, I can go check it out, but you could wait. Uh, no, no, wait. no, no, no. Um, and if that uh, monologue of Matt's was one of the reasons he did the film, then his line in this scene, you know, you're the uh, only person I know, is one of the reasons that she did it. And uh, again, another great original Tony Gilroy moment. Jason Bourne speaks a number of different languages. We saw him speak Swiss German on the park bench. Um, and again... I just needed to be able to communicate in French. Matt needed to actually pull off, you know, perfect fluency because that was a character trait. Matt went through what was a pretty incredible process because we'd have a, uh, somebody who was a native speaker, either Swiss German or in this case for this scene, you know, my assistant Benjamin would tell him how to say the lines in French that he's about to say. And the scene was a little bit longer, so Matt actually, it doesn't seem that impressive, but he, he actually had to say a lot more when we shot this. He'd also record it onto a, a micro cassette recorder, and Matt would sit in his trailer, and he would listen to it, and it would go into this part of his brain, and he actually could say it back out with the accent perfect, hit every syllable, and not only that, but you could go to him a couple of months later, and he could output it again. It, it was incredible to watch that process and, and, and watch all of the different languages and watch how he convincingly pulled them off, especially because, you know, some of the languages that he sure does in the film goes. are more difficult, like in the mirror early on where he's speaking, uh, I believe it's Dutch, you know, is, is not the simplest language to pull off.
And this was something that was always really important to me was bringing him to this house, you know, because this is all about, you know, again, I, I talked about this film being a Wizard of Oz and, and its desire to return home. And for me, there was no better way to dramatize that than by giving him a false home and giving him a place where he thinks he's gone home and then it's not really his home and it gets stripped away. But uh, I was not approaching this film like it was an action film. I was approaching it like a drama, like it was Wizard of Oz. And obviously, you know. So it's all coming back, huh? Since it's also a mystery, going to the apartment gave us an opportunity for... uh, us to you know you put some I some interesting clues into it and this we are shooting in a real apartment in Paris we also built part of this apartment on a sound stage or in a warehouse I keep saying sound stage but for the most part we did not shoot in sound stages but we we shot in old warehouses they're fun they have you know more history to them and they're a lot cheaper Uh, yeah, hello. Hello. Yes, sir. Hotel Regina, Paris. How may I direct your call? Yeah, you're in Paris? Yes, sir. I, I'm looking for a, uh, a guest there, uh, Jason Bourne. Since we're about to introduce uh, Nicky Nod, assume I'm not spoiling the movie for anybody listening to this, um, I should talk a little bit about the French casting and the, a little bit more about the European casting. Uh, you know, because okay. we, uh, we had a... Joseph oh, wait, Middleton, no, no, no. who uh, was based in Los Angeles and uh, was the sort of head casting director for the film, uh, but you know, I also had Kate Dowd uh, working out of London, uh, um, and then in France uh, with me in, in my like Paris office, I had yeah. Natalie Sharon and Claire Hammond, and Natalie and Claire were sort of my day-to-day casting people, and they're the ones who got Nikki for me, which was not a easy task because I needed, since Matt was going to be doing all of his own fighting. Uh, yeah. Um, we needed the person that he fought against to not only be able to act, but also they needed to be trained as a stunt person. Claire, unfortunately, was killed in a uh, scooter accident right after we finished shooting the movie. And she's somebody we all tremendously miss, and, and you know, the film is dedicated uh, to her and also to Robert Ludlum, who also died after we finished shooting the movie, but before he had a chance to see it. Those were both big losses for me, Claire, because she was so part of the process of making the film and also just part of my life in Paris, and you know, she was so full of life and Ludlum because I had gone to visit him in Montana as a little independent filmmaker, and he took a liking to me and ultimately let me take his most high-profile novel and shop it to the studios and try to make it into a movie. And, and, you know, he really took a chance. You know, a lot of people have taken chances on me in my career, but, you know, I feel like Robert Ludlum really took a chance on me and, you know, really took sort of a fatherly attitude towards me. And and I I will always, uh, you know, he'll always occupy a special place in my heart for his having done that and, you know, uh, this was a very difficult film to make, and he thinking about Robert and trying to to do something that would be uh, a great version of his book was something that was important for me, not just to do for myself, but to do for him. So.
What? Nothing. We're now in Prague here. This is a, a set we built in Prague. This was something that didn't work. And in hindsight, when you look at this sequence with Nikki coming through the window, you know, it makes everybody in the theater jump. What is it? It's really pretty fun to watch. Something but, wrong? you know, I'm used to doing comedy where I see everybody laugh at the same time. But it, it's definitely interesting to sort of stand at the back of a the theater and just watch, like, you know, 500 people collectively jump up in their seats. The initial shot that I did did not work. Um, and luckily, I came up with a pretty simple fix to it. Obviously, I should be talking about the fighting sequence now. This is Kali, and Nick Powell is coordinating and, for the most part, directing this. This sequence, probably the most rehearsed thing we did in the entire movie over a period of about two months. So we had every shot, every move worked out, and... Everything that's in this room was shot all in one day, broken down into three move sequences or four move sequences like a dance. So they do the three or four moves and we'd call cut. We'd get it from a couple of different angles and then we move on to the next three or move, four move sequence. And you know, there is no stunt double in this. It is all Nikki and it is all Matt. Um, there's never a double in this sequence, as you can see, because you see Matt's face in every shot. And that was important to me. I feel like audiences are, are too sophisticated today to trick them. The style of fighting called Kali was something that was demonstrated to Matt and, and myself early in the process, really right after he signed on to the film. We saw a demonstration of martial arts and we saw a demonstration of Kali in Los Angeles. And the thing that we loved about Kali was how efficient it was, that you don't break into a sweat, you use the aggressor's energy against them. And not only did we decide that that's the, the fight form that Jason Bourne should use, but it started to inform other decisions that I was making about Jason Bourne. I said, you know, that should be the defining thing about Jason Bourne. He should be ruthlessly efficient and not waste energy when he doesn't have to. So the guy went out the window. He's not running around. He's not freaking out. He looks at his watch. He's like, okay, I probably have two minutes before the cops get here. He's calmly putting the money in the bag. He's calmly telling her to wear her sh get her shoes. That all actually originated with this demonstration of Kali. And you see it throughout the film when situations arise that a lesser person might, or a more normal person might start freaking out. Jason Bourne gets calm and he gets efficient. You know, he conserves energy, and that's that's what Kali does. So it, it's, you know, it just gives you a sense of how the action and the drama of the film really were very integrated. And it's why I felt that with this project, I could do an action movie but not sell out, not, not do a movie that, you know, where the action was gratuitous um, because, you know, it is so integral to the drama that it actually influences a lot of the, the straight dramatic choices. Don't look. 
Alpha 37509. Yeah. Hang on. Warren, he went to Paris. He went to the apartment. We got it? Tell me. He killed our man. What, in the apartment? Yeah. Well, you gotta clean that up. No, I can't clean it up. There's a body in the streets. So? There's police. This is Paris. All right, put up the scanners. Get as much radio information as you can. Okay. You stay here. Go find a place for this money. I'll be back in 10 minutes. The sequence you're about to see that's inside the Garden Nord, Matt and I actually went and just shot it, which was easier when I was working with John Favreau and Vince Vaughn than with Matt, who was being recognized by everybody in this train station. So while we're shooting this sequence, we're literally running away from crazed fans, but all of this is stolen. The crew for this sequence consists of myself and Matt Damon, and that's it. And we had to take Matt around the block twice just to sort of lose most of the people who were following him. There's one shot in here that was legitimately shot, and that's this shot. Uh, but you can see that it's missing some of the energy that is in the earlier shots, which is why I went back in there with Matt to get those shots, but we actually did pull it off. But it's also harder to do that when you have a huge movie star like Matt Damon. As you could tell, the camera was low because I was sort of hiding it so people didn't notice it. But, you know, Matt couldn't cover his face. So, you know, the days of doing that, uh, if I continue to work with people on Matt's stature, you know, could possibly be numbered. You know, there's a number of shots sort of woven through the film where Matt and I just went off and did it ourselves. Um, you know, I had an amazing assistant. I told you during this film, and who started working with me on, on Go. You know, his name is Colin O'Hara, and anyway. he's kind of a can-do kind of guy. Right you and, this gets any you know, it, a lot of times it would just it's be myself okay. and Colin and Matt. Okay, you show this to I come from independent film, and because I'm used to shooting my own movies, um, I'm very comfortable every, just grabbing the camera and going. You. you know, I recommend to people who are going into film, you know, it's not a bad thing to sort of learn the, the straight technical side uh, because you never know when grabbing the camera could get you something special for your film. Um, you know, we didn't do it very much in this movie and possibly with a little bit more planning, we wouldn't have had to do any of it. But, you know, we were shooting in seven countries. Uh, this was much more logistically challenging than I thought it would be. This is a sequence where, you know, I really wanted to keep Jason Bourne stoic throughout the entire film and never see the emotional side, which, which is a risky choice because, you know, it, it's, the guy has amnesia, it's hard to relate to him, but there was the moment early on and there's this moment where I really wanted to see the other side of, where I wanted to at least put a little crack in the veneer. And the reason I was really willing to sort of take that chance with Jason Bourne is yeah, that for me, a lot of ways this is Marie's now. story because she's the one normal person in the movie. Again, I talk about Kali influencing Matt Damon's performance. You know, the cops are starting to surround the car. 
He's getting very calm. He's looking for the map. This is not how people normally react to stressful situations. But to car. me, this is the dramatic equivalent of what Kali is to martial arts. And this is obviously a great time to talk about my incredible second unit director, uh, Alexander Witt. Um, and I also had an additional editor, Chris Rouse. And you know, this sequence wouldn't be the sequence it is without the contribution of, of those two incredible people. And again, that's, you know, last chance, Murray. In a lot of ways, doing a big studio film isn't all that different than shooting uh, a lower budget movie. But, you know, getting to work with people like Alexander um, and Chris, I mean, being able to have an editor who, who does nothing but work. You know, Chris did a tremendous amount on the movie, but he, he worked a very long time on this sequence. Um, and Alexander shot this sequence. You know, I would, I would storyboard the sequence with Alexander and we'd go over it. Other than the fight, this was the most planned thing in the production, and this was really worked out about two months before we started principal photography. Pretty much every shot, because of the permitting process in Paris. But Alexander would be off shooting the sequence um, pretty much the whole time we were in Paris shooting the rest of the movie. He was off on Saturdays and Sundays, every Saturday and Sunday, shooting a piece of this sequence. For the most part, I would just show up to sort of check on it, but you know, all of the work had to be done in advance, so there was nothing really for me to do on the day, other than I did want to get some shots with Matt Damon and Franco Patente in the actual stunt sequences. So there are uh, some shots in the sequence where you know Franco Patente would get in the passenger seat and I'd get in the back seat with the camera, and the stunt person would go through the sequence um, with the two of us in the car. Or we also had an English version of the car where the steering wheel was on the right side and the stunt person would put on a wig to look like Franco Patente and Matt Damon would be on the left side of the car with a fake steering wheel pretending like he was driving and I'd be in the back seat filming him. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big roller coaster fan and I like sort of high adrenaline excitement. But going in a car doing the stuff like the, the shot you just saw uh, was definitely the scariest thing I've ever been through. Turn your head away. Turn your head away. under Nick Powell, but the French really have probably the best drivers in the world, you know, especially motorcycle drivers, but also precision car drivers. So it, it really w was an amazing team that was put together here. We had the, the first assistant director on the second unit crew who worked under Alexander, uh, Fanny Aubersman, really did a phenomenal job because, again, there's obviously some similarities between this and Ronin because, you know, it's a high-speed chase in France. But I really wanted the streets to be crowded with people 
you know, I didn't want this to take place in sort of a fictional space where the city's empty, which you see in a lot of movies. I wanted it, you know, it's Paris in the middle of the day. Um, and I wanted there to be people and it to be messy. And it's a lot of Alexander, but it's Fanny really as the uh, first assistant director on the second unit crew. It's her job to sort of wrangle all of the extras and the extra cars and, and make the city feel populated. And the first assistant directors are, are often underappreciated. But you can spot a movie where they haven't done their job or the director hasn't let them do their job where, you know, it feels like the movie's taking place in, in, in a movie world. And, you know, Luke Etienne, who was my assistant director, and Fanny, who was Alexander Witz's uh, first assistant director, together, you know, really filled and populated the world. And this scene is actually my favorite scene in the whole film with everything we did and all of the fun gadgets and cool sequences and high energy scenes and, and this scene and all of its simplicity for me was, was why I was doing the movie is what it was about because it humanized the car chase and made it about character development. For us in the audience it was four minutes of really exciting car chase but for Jason Bourne it was four minutes of learning about his past and learning things that he probably wasn't so excited about. I loved all of these actors I, I got to work with in the morgue, like Hubert uh, saint Mercury, who's the guy they're dealing with right now. Um, really just amazing French actors, and, and because I, by the time we got to this, really had become completely fluent in French, you know, I felt like I was able to work with them in a very comfortable manner and uh, feel, you know, based on my experience with those guys, I'd love to do a whole film in French. Again, this is some of Alexander's work, you know, the cars driving through Paris. You know, it's just am amazing to have, you know, such a uh, capable second unit director like Alexander. Uh, John August actually uh, went off and shot some things for me. It's really a great luxury as a director to have. Um, to look at a shot list and say, oh my God, we can't get all of these things and know that there's somebody to turn to that you can uh, give uh, the material to. Um, and then you recognize this upcoming, this, this shot of the car. This is kind of, uh, you know, it's a style of filmmaking that I had started working on with uh, Case of Go. We, we filmed it from a quad forerunner. Here we're filming from a, a, a motorcycle. I love trying to put energy onto the screen, you know, capture energy and put it on the screen, you know, because it's a movie, not a play. If you ever sat next to me in a play, you'd probably understand why I'm not aspiring to do movies that are like plays. I, I have a very short attention span. Uh,
this moment was very important to me that it be Franca trying to kiss Matt um, and that, you know, her awakening in him something, but that, you know, I didn't think that we really had the luxury here for the two of them to completely forget about the fundamental problem, you know, that Jason Bourne's facing as a character. And this was really a challenging scene on both parts because the, in terms of Marie's character, you know, given everything she's been through, there were some issues about would you really be attracted to somebody who's just put you through uh, what Jason Bourne has put Marie through. And I ultimately felt like, yes, I would. I mean, that, that's actually really how I started this film. I was reading The Bourne Identity on an airplane, and what struck me was that what would it be like if you met a guy like Jason Bourne, somebody who, who looked like Matt Damon, who had a heart of gold, but he was incredibly violent, was leaving a trail of bodies, and had a past that might be really dark. You know, what would you do? I wiped the whole place down for fingerprints. Can I walk around or is it gonna leave any footprints? <laughs> you can walk around, it's no problem. But we'll just keep track of everything we touch. I just think it's better if we leave a room that we're not gonna leave a trail. Why, where are we going? I need to go to the hotel where John Michael Caine stayed, the Hotel Regina. Um, if I was him, then they're gonna have some records. We need that hotel bill. Okay. It gets slightly complicated, though. Because you're dead? Right. Sir, please. They want what? And we will give them what? If they want to kill me, they better kill me the first time. They better kill me dead. They better kill me when I'm in my sleep. Nikwana, listen to me. We need these people. It's hard enough getting people that we know to help us. We need to be careful. We? No, you. You need to bring me back that bastard Ken's head, put it out in front of this house, and show them what kind of war we are fighting. But that is precisely... <laughs> Exits? There's three. Service at the back. Uh, side goes to the street, past the shops. Front is the best. 
If I think I'm being followed, I walk out with the bag over my right shoulder. And if there's no taxi? I keep on walking. Don't look back until you make contact. What? We need this, right? Okay. Distances. You walk in, you pick a spot, some midpoint in the lobby. I want you to count your steps to that spot and then remember that number because after I call you, I can get you moving. You understand? I also need a head count. How many people from the time you walk in until you get to the desk? How many hotel employees are there? And obviously security, and it might not be that easy to see who they are. So I'll call you, you give me the layout, and we'll take it from there. What happened? Did, did something go wrong? What? I've got the records. This guy at the front desk was smiling at me, so I thought, you know, all this trouble, maybe it's easier to just ask for them. Do you have the bill? Maybe a photocopy. You just asked for it? I said I was Mr. Kane's personal assistant. Oh. <laughs> okay. Good thinking. This is actually one of my favorite Treadstone scenes because there's so much unspoken. And that, to me, is where you get character and you get performance. And you don't see that too often in action movies. People are usually just speaking the plot. But Tony Gilroy gave me a scene here where, for those of you who are astute, you, you realize that Chris Cooper is really telling Gabe Mann to lie to, to Brian Cox and you're getting that Brian Cox might be starting to pick up on it. And again, none of that's said. None of that's in the dialogue. That's all the actors bringing that to the scene. And the mission, we think he'll come back in. They always do. When? How long till he checks in? 24 hours. 24 hours? Yeah, it's usually something like that. Then what? I told you we'd clean this up. You know, I should talk about John Powell, who was the composer, and, and Julianne Kelly, who was my music supervisor. Julianne's actually part of sort of my oldest team. I mean, she did Swingers with me, she did Go with me, and she uh, did Born Identity. This was a new thing for Julianne and I because Swingers and Go were all uh, source material and picking songs and just, you know, we'd spend, you know, endless nights with stacks and stacks of CDs. Here was working with John and up at his uh, studio in his house and just going there for these six-hour sessions where he'd play music for us and we'd listen to it and then we'd give notes and then we'd come back the next day and we'd listen to more music and then we'd come back the next day and, you know, there's a tremendous amount of score in this movie and... John was, was extraordinarily collaborative 
and he was the kind of guy who, you know, this was not an easy movie to score because in some ways it's what people call a tweener. It's a thriller, but it's not one of those sort of traditional studio spy action films where you just throw in a bunch of songs and then, you know, you put them on the poster too, featuring, you know, the music of, you know, whatever the hot band is. This was, you know, something where there was something more traditional about this, but still, I'm not a throwback filmmaker, and I wanted the sound to be modern and moving forward. And it took a lot of exploration to really find the right sound for the movie, but um, it was incredible. When, when we finally finished John's score and put it to the movie, it probably more than any other single element elevated the viewing experience of the movie double. You know, it made the movie literally twice as enjoyable uh, listening to it with John's music than listening to it with temp music. That really was an extraordinary experience working with Julianne and, and John to do that. Mr. Kane? Mr. Kane, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Oh, Mr. Kane, come right in. Please, have a seat. Thank you. So, this is the Palmer Johnson Tri-Deck. Yeah, I'm assuming you're still in the market. It's still the same vessel. Yes. This actually also was a, a reshoot where we felt that we needed to just see a little bit more of his emotion. Uh, again, you know, I was really trying to stick to my guns to keep his character stoic, but, you know, every 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you know, in the film, we felt like we needed to just sort of remind people that he actually is human and is bothered by his dilemma because it's in keeping with his character to not actually say that. In a morgue here in Paris, but if... You are John Michael Kane. Whose body do they have? This actor, Philippe Durand, was again, again? courtesy of Natalie and Claire, my French casting directors. Um, and I, I loved working with Philippe and with Hubert on this sequence. I loved directing a scene in French. And again, this scene kind of pokes fun at the French, but in a very loving way, because it's a country I really respect, but, you know, these are such classic French characters. You know, probably to French people watching the film, it might seem a, a little cliche, but um, for me, it really was fun to work with Philippe and Hubert and, and to do this sequence in French. Is this it? Where, where is it? You know, this is actually also one of my favorite sequences in the film. And in the sequence coming up here, this is actually Oliver Wood with the camera on his shoulder shooting this. It, it was one of the first times I sort of relinquished control of the camera, and I loved what Oliver did, and, and it actually made me a, a more trusting filmmaker and ultimately resulted in, in me turning over a lot of the camera work to Yarda, who, who's my uh, Czech Steadicam operator, but who, because of the techniques we were developing, I started working more and more with Yarda even when we weren't using Steadicam. This is it, right? You can't just take the no, book. No, 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 it's okay. There's a pencil in here. All right, that's fine. Honey, why don't you go wait outside? Right, and... Oh, here it is. We send that up. Okay. Excuse me. 
Jason, what just happened in there? What are you looking for? Nikwana Wambosi. Wambosi went to the morgue to visit Kane. You know, Matt and Franca look so good so here. I think we should talk a little bit about uh, how that happens. It's obviously uh, a lot of Oliver Wood's lighting with Mikel. But it's also, you know, I had amazing people. I had a uh, French uh, makeup person, uh, Jean-Luc Roussier, and for hair, Kay Giorgio, who's, you know, you probably see her on the credits of tons and tons of, of huge movies. And obviously for Franca, hair was a huge issue because it was going to change in the movie and because from Run Lola Run her hair was was all about it being red and you know there were tons of, of discussions with the studio about what color her hair would be or not be and then the haircut that Matt quote unquote gives her in the film had to seem plausible but she still had to look great and Kay and Jean-Luc really did a phenomenal job with Franca and with Matt making them, you know, very sexy and appealing, but not not making it feel artificial or glam, which is hard to do, and and uh, it was was important for this story, and very glad to be working with them. This cab driver who's driving is actually one of our drivers in the film, uh, Manu Bouz. And, you know, you shoot in France, you have a French crew, and there's people from the crew that you can sometimes, you know, pull into it. And we auditioned a lot of people, but Manu gives it kind of an authenticity that is very important for the movie because once you lose that authenticity, then you as a filmmaker, you make an agreement with the audience and you, you, you create a world. And as long as you honor that world, everything's uh, okay. But if you start to violate some of the rules you're setting up for the world, if, if, you know, if we ever did anything in this film that didn't feel authentic, the whole thing would start to unravel. Because then people would say, well, you know, if it's not gonna be authentic, then give us a lot more explosions, which we, we obviously didn't do. And, you know, that was obviously having Matt and Franca to work with was a huge asset because, you know, like a scene like this, we were given an hour to shoot this entire scene, total, beginning to end, everything you've, you've seen, you know, from him handing her the, uh, the page to running across the street to yelling at her. So there's only two takes at most of any of these shots. And you can only do that when you've got actors of the caliber of Matt Damon and Franca Patente. Marie, stop, Marie, Get stop right me. there. Stop right oh, what? there. What are you gonna do, kill me? Marie. Is that what's next? Listen, stay calm, stay calm. Whatever we do, we have to do it together. We have to be Marie? The only thing we had in common was that neither one of us knew who you were. We passed that Marie. now. The police will find us, and the people who took that picture in the embassy, the people who killed Wambosi, they are gonna come here and they are gonna the kill us. The people you work for. I will take you wherever you need to go. I will take you there, I will leave you there. You can do whatever you want. You never have to see me again, but not here. If we stay here, we die. Whoa. 
boy. Great police work, really brilliant. Why don't they just hang out a banner that says, don't come back? Jesus Christ, what is a French word for stakeout, huh? Okay, this was 16 minutes ago. This is our starting point. You can't fly, trains are risky. And again, this is some of that steady cam work that I was developing with Yarda. Some of my uh, favorite Chris Cooper moments in that sequence. Again, Sarkline was able to, by doing this intercutting, he was able to use more of the material that I shot than would otherwise have been okay. Because as I've said earlier on the DVD, I overshot Chris Cooper and Brian Cox because Tony Gilroy had written so much great material between the two of them. And it was one of the more difficult aspects of editing this film was, was trimming it down. And the way Saar intercut this, we were able to actually incorporate the best moments from a couple of scenes into the time space that one scene would normally occupy. This is actually the Czech Siberia uh, that earlier on I was outside. Now these guys are outside. That really is a snowstorm. We're not adding that. We backchecked those numbers and ran a search merge with any other data we had on her, which wasn't much, but... Pins. These pins. These are all the places we think she's lived in the last six years. One, two, three, four, five. That's our pool. Matt's... Uh, putting the tape on that window because he stole the car. You know, it was one of my desires in making this film to keep the pace moving forward and to not explain every detail, but make sure the information's there for the audience to figure out. So I'm, I'm not sure at the end of the day how many people figured out the car was stolen, but for people who wanted to figure it out, there it is. He broke the window and that's how he got into it. This whole sequence is actually one of my favorite things that Saar put together, and it was actually, I think, in his editor's assembly, he pulled this off, and editors do that. You know, first cuts of movies are, are usually the worst. They're pretty much usually unwatchable, but there's always moments in that first cut that don't change, even though you spend another year editing. There's always moments that the editor nailed, and that was one of those moments. And this farmhouse is supposed to be Paris, but we found it just outside Prague. And, uh, you know, a little moment like this where Matt looks at a problem and just thinks of a simpler way to attack it and is very, you know, sort of nonchalant about it is something that to me was very important to his character. And, you know, go. as he's starting to figure out that what? obviously somebody must be home, you know, he doesn't freak out. He just tells her, okay, we're going. I thought he wouldn't... Oh, shit, that's Eamon. I'll talk to him. We're leaving. When we went to cast the role of Eamon, hey, we needed to do that out, out of England because well, uh, he is an English actor and really because we had our uh, casting director in uh, Kate Dowd up in London... She was able to find Tim Dutton for us, no who really is an incredible actor and just brings so much to the role so quickly and, and so easily. She get you into this? 
It was just going to be for a day. Daddy Allen has to go pee! All right, all right, come on. Yeah, get out of the car. I'm sorry. I, I thought it was would be okay, but I, I guess I was wrong. It's fine, Mummy. Mummy is away for two days, thank God. You got yourself all tied up. Okay. What's he do for a living? He used to be in shipping. Uh -huh. Is it good for you? Are you happy? You know me. I try too hard. Here you go. Sleep well. I was talking about how part of making you know the characters look great and Kay and Jean Luc. Uh, you know, I also had an uh, amazing costumer, French costumer, Pierre Yves Gerard. And, you know, it's one of just the great things about doing a studio film is, you know, you get to get really the top people in their field in each of the jobs. And Pierre Yves was, he didn't just do the costumes, but he, he was part of the creative process. They were in Paris at 2 a.m. They can't fly, the train's too dangerous. He knows better than to go anywhere we might track him. So this is our best guess. And Julia Stiles out here on the Tuileries is the last time you'll see that uh, Ferris wheel in a uh, uh, movie because uh, it has since been taken down. Actually, some of the shots, aerial shots of Paris in the film, I, I actually went and filmed from the top of that Ferris wheel. This sequence that is coming up when I talk about, you know, Marie and the film from her point of view and what would you do if you met a guy like this and, and given everything you've been through and he asked you to run away, would you? It comes down to this sequence coming up. It also, on, on an intellectual level, since this film is about Jason Bourne up until this point has been trying to unravel his past because he wants to go home, and he feels like unraveling his past is the key to going home. And this, is, for me, is the moment in that journey where he decides he doesn't want to know anything more about his past and he doesn't want to go home to that place anymore. And, and can you just leave your past behind? They're going to find out in the morning that you can't leave your past behind because it'll come and find you. It's sort of an intellectual concept, but to me what was one of the really fundamental concepts that went into crafting this story. Is there any chance you could do that? Another important thing about that sequence was that I wanted to start to plant something with the kids. You know, you saw them playing on the swings with the kids and again, not hit it too hard. And there's a scene missing that is in the European version where they have dinner and there's a little bit of an interaction between uh, Jason Bourne and, and the little boy that, for time reasons, was cut out of the American version. Morning. Christ, you were up early. Bless you for making coffee. One night, you weren't kidding. For a change. 
again, when I talk about how we crafted the character of Jason Bourne, in, you know, and how under pressure he's calm and how he thinks this kind of moment where uh, Jason Bourne, you know, hears the facts and then just very matter of fact says, get in the basement. Something that Tony Gilroy, as far as I'm concerned, just hit out of the park. And you know, it's one of the, you know, as a filmmaker, when you're when you're crafting a story like this, there's sort of these sort of tentpole moments. And to me, that's one of them. It's not her. It's me. In other movies, those tentpole moments would be "I'll be back," or something you know much bigger, more dramatic. And for me, it was moments like "Get in the Basement" that that were the tentpole moments for this film. It's also very interesting working on this sequence with Matt because in Tony's script, the tentpole moment really was coming up when Marie says, "What about these children?" and Jason Bourne says, "I won't let that happen," and. It was clear how Jason Bourne should deliver. I won't let that happen. The phone is dead. But Matt Damon wouldn't do it. He, he said, you know, that's derivative. It's derivative of things that I've seen in other movies, first and foremost. And um, also, actually, uh, a little sidetrack here. Again, you know, I love that he figures out that the gun is up high because there's children's games down low. And, you know, my production designer, Dan Vale, it was, you know, my idea had originally been that the gun would be in a rack, and he said, no, you know, you have a gun, you're going to keep it up really high, because Dan has kids, and again, he doesn't just build the sets, he's part of, of creatively figuring out the characters. Um, so getting back to the, I won't let that happen, um, it was sort of a fun challenge working with Matt to take a line like, I won't let that happen, and figure out a way to say it that doesn't feel like the cliche kind of Bruce Willis uh, diehard moment because we weren't trying to do a movie that was derivative of that and Matt Damon wasn't trying to pretend to be one of those guys and Matt really I think came up with something very special I guess in this sequence you know I, I've I haven't talked about Frank Marshall yet uh, who, who came on board as my producer about a week into production I had invited Frank to come on board as the producer much earlier than that, but he wasn't available, and then his schedule changed. I had Alexander Witt out shooting, and then Frank, you know, when I really got under pressure, I'd also send Frank out with a camera to shoot things. So this sequence was kind of fun because I had Frank shooting some of Clive Owen's footage while I was shooting Matt Damon's, and we agreed we'd meet on this field. And so we had these two crews out in the uh, you know, middle of the dead of winter in Prague, and we knew eventually we'd meet up. But I'm following Matt Damon, and he's following Clive Owen. You know, there's a lot of digital effects in this movie that Peter Donan put in that are done so well that you don't even know that they're effects. So, you know, there's no birds. We didn't have any birds when we shot this sequence. You'll see, I'm going to show that where Clive just got shot there. That wheat was digitally painted in. 
it's amazing what you can do uh, with digital effects, and you don't even know it. You know, the audience doesn't know it, but you know, you as a filmmaker can tell the story more effectively and more economically. And there's, there's also we're going to get to some sequences where uh, we couldn't physically build the set or find the location, and, and Peter Donan created the locations from scratch. This sequence is shot entirely on one piece of film, without me calling cut. We always work a lot. Who me? Who are you, Brian? Paris? Treadstone. Both of us. Treadstone? Which one? Paris. I live in Paris. Do you get the headaches? Yeah. I get such bad headaches. You know, at night when you're driving a car. I don't know, maybe it's something to do with the headlights. What is Treadstone? Treadstone said pills. They said, go to Paris. Is Treadstone in Paris? Look at this. Look at what they make you give. Get in the front, put your belt on. Right, we're just gonna put you in the front. All right, get in the front, buddy. I'm not waiting, Marie. One minute, Amy. I'm not okay? waiting. Please. Take it. I took out 30 grand, the rest is yours. That's it. That's all I got. That's not what I meant. This is not going to stop, Marie. You got to get out now, away from me. You got to get out. You got to start running. You get low. You stay low. No more friends. Nothing familiar. There's enough in there for you to make a life. Any life. I'm out of here, Marie. Hey. Get in the car. You got to go. What are you going to do? I'll end it. Go ahead. Please. This scene is the start of the new ending um, for the movie. Writing endings of movies is extraordinarily difficult, and the ending for Swingers had to be rewritten. Uh, luckily, we, we were able to rewrite that before we started shooting. The ending of Go uh, needed to be rewritten, um, and the ending of Born Identity needed to be rewritten. I, I mean, it didn't need to be rewritten, but to make it the most it could be, it took more work on the script than was able to be done before we started shooting the movie. 
so all of this material was was done as, as part of a, a reshoot that um, again you know I was very fortunate that, that Universal really believed in the movie and let me go back and do this code in The, the original ending was a little bit more pat where Jason Bourne just showed up to where Chris Cooper was. But we there was no action in the end of the third act. The, the last action in the movie was the farmhouse sequence. What Tony had written involved a huge fire in Julia Stiles' office, and the studio just didn't have confidence in my ability to shoot that sequence in, uh, in the schedule that we had left to shoot it. And they were right. I mean, we, we definitely gone over schedule because it was very elaborate what Tony had written, but, but really quite brilliant. And then when we first previewed the film, uh, Mark Schmugger, who is the head of marketing for Universal, said to me, you know, you really should put another piece of action at the end of the film. And we shot basically, you know, from where I started talking about the alternate ending, which is, you know, at the farmhouse where he's at the table, in, until the very end of the film is, is all new material um, and all shot uh, under a very tight time schedule of, of uh, 10 days in two different countries. And I was able to pull that off. 5.30 p.m. Paris, today, Pont Neuf. You come alone, you walk to the middle of that bridge, you take off your jacket, face east. I'll redial this number. Jason, wait. First flight out, tell Nikki I'll call from the car, tell her to find Pico now. Go. So... What are we gonna do? I told you I'd clean this up. That's what I'm doing. Can you really bring him in? I think we're past that, don't you? What, do you have a better idea? Well, so far, you've given me nothing but a trail of collateral damage from Zurich to Paris. I don't think I could do much worse. Well, I should also talk about some of the people who, you know, their names aren't prominent in the credits, but, you know, you just couldn't do it without them. And uh, one of them is the uh, production manager Tink Ten Eck who really believed in me and you know would sneak me extra time and you know believed in the movie and there's a lot of material that I was able to shoot because she went out on the limb to support me and to, to support the movie there's also our uh, production coordinator, who's basically the woman who runs the office, who is this amazing Austrian woman named uh, Hilda Odelga. And Hilda was the kind of woman who you could ask anything of her and she could produce it. And it, it became kind of a running joke in the office to uh, think of the most obscure thing you could ask Hilda for and then see if she could produce it. And she had these cases of Tupperware containers behind her desk. and. You could say, uh, Hilda, I need a keychain. And she'd open up a, you know, they're totally unlabeled. She'd open up a Tupperware container and pull out a whole thing of them and say, what color would you like? The bus. The tour bus. Second level. 
Situasi Jason, I told you to come alone. I guess that was too complicated. So try this. I'm gone. Get Nikki on the phone. Two men outside, one in the lobby, and keep your eyes open. Keep the truck? Yeah, keep the truck. I'm gonna close this unit down. We'll move the gear in the truck. Here we've got, you know, the character of Mannheim, Russell Levy, who Kate Dowd cast in London. It's one of the tougher casting I had to do because Mannheim actually doesn't speak during the film. He just needs to have a kind of presence. It's very hard to cast that and it's hard to act that. And, you know, it really was an extraordinarily rigorous search um, to, to find Russell. This is Matt Damon on a soundstage. Again, all of this is new material shot during this two-week period. There's an interesting moment about to come up here. You know, I, I pride myself on kind of being a risk-taker in life, but there's a moment coming up here where I actually chose to play it safe. Um, which is where Jason Bourne scales the wall in the background. I actually had shot it, this shot right here, that you're seeing Matt Damon crosses in the background and goes up the wall behind them. And it had been my idea to not cut to this close-up. That close-up was a safety backup. And to just hold on the big wide shot, and maybe half the audience would catch that Jason Bourne was climbing up the drain pipe in the back and half the audience wouldn't and you know maybe you wouldn't even catch it till the second time you saw the film and and i i really like the idea of building a moment in like that but we didn't have time to test the movie i needed to know that at least like a third of the audience would would see it and i was worried that it might be the kind of thing that nobody noticed until i gave a commentary on the dvd and 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 because, you know, if I was able to test it, I would have been able to then ask people to raise their hands, you know, how did Matt 
get into the building and people who figured out that he went up the wall, you know, obviously noticed it. And, you know, if, if a couple of people in the theater had noticed it, that would have been enough for me. But since I, I couldn't test it, I had to play it safe. But that's life. This sequence is actually a uh, combination of original principal photography. And then I said, you know, we went and reshot the ending. This basically was the only scene that existed in the original ending. We didn't have any of the action that preceded it to get Jason Bourne into the apartment. You know, nothing on the bridge, nothing on the phone. He just showed up there. Um, you move, you die. Because of scheduling Bourne. considerations, we couldn't get Julia Stiles back for this sequence when I could get Chris Cooper and Matt Damon because we had a very short window. And so this is a combination of using footage from uh, the original shoot and the new reshoot between Jason Bourne and uh, Chris Cooper because we couldn't just go with the existing scene that took place in this apartment because once we made Jason Bourne much more active in terms of, of getting into the apartment, we needed to make the scene between them much more heated. You're a malfunctioning $30 million weapon. You're a total goddamn catastrophe. And by God, but through the magic of editing and, and working with Chris Rouse and Starkline on the sequence, which really is, you know, is the most important scene in the whole movie, I just had great editorial support to pull this off. And Matt Damon and I basically rewrote this scene in Paris in the, the days before we shot it. And... Frank Marshall really showed me what a producer was about in terms of, of carving out a little bit of time for us to be able to shoot it. I want to know what happened in Marseille. I don't remember what happened in Marseille. Bullshit! This is unacceptable, soldier. You hear me? You failed. Unacceptable! You failed, you failed and you're going to tell me why. I, I can't tell you. I can't. I don't remember. You brought John Michael Payne alive. Thing. You put together a meeting with Wambosi. You found what? the security company. I don't... You broke into the office. For Christ's sake, you're the one who picked the yacht as a goddamn strike point. Now, this material that uh, we're about to see out on the boat, you know, I had a tremendous amount of support um, in shooting it, and it, it didn't come from where you'd expect it to come from. You know, it, it came first and foremost from my uh, production manager, Tink, Von uh, Tech, and it came from the crew of the MV White Knight, um, which is the boat that we're filming on in Greece. And Captain Costas, uh, seemed like everybody we met in Greece who worked on this movie was called Costas. But it's actually, the rest of the crew went home and I stayed and shot this sequence with my assistant Colin O'Hara. Once we got Matt and uh, Adewale in the can, the rest of the crew went home, and all of those POVs that you see, um, I shot and I used the crew of the boat as my crew. And there's a sequence where it's Matt's POV going out the door. I had the camera on my shoulder, and to sort of simulate being shot, I asked Captain Costas' wife to hit me on the back. So that's me. That I just fell with the camera because she was a very strong Greek woman. And when she hit me on the back, she literally knocked me to the ground. But I, I put my arms around the camera, and I didn't break the camera. Don't you? 
I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think that's a decision you can make. This dialogue that, that Tony wrote for Matt, um, which was meant to sort of be delivered in, a, in, you know, when you read it in the script, the more cliche way that you would read it would be, uh, you know, sort of much bigger. And, you know, Matt Damon and I had a lot of fun making it small. I will bring this fight to your doorstep. I'm on my own side now. These characters that Jason Bourne's about to fight, um, Pico, who's the character right outside the door, um, Dennis Bertini, again, all part of the reshoots, all part of that same two-week time period. And um, I really had... Uh, great support in terms of casting these people. Nikki Powell came in and, and you know, coordinated a, a great fight. <laughs> Matt, by this point, had pretty much become a complete arms expert, and it was his idea to, to hold the gun upside down. And what's interesting about this sequence is that we technically couldn't build the stairwell. So there is no stairwell. This is all Peter Donan's creation. That's really the, the beauty of, a, uh, of modern filmmaking is that sets that are too expensive to build, you can now paint. And that's what we did here. Um, and, and obviously Peter did an amazing job with this. And I mean, I'm talking about everything. There is no stairwell. There's just, you know, half a stair there's just half a flight um, that Peter then turned into a, you know, a five-flight stairwell. And this, again, you know, the whole point of Jason Bourne is, you know, he doesn't have a cue who gives him the gadgets to get out of his situations. He has to do it himself. He starts his movie naked. I mean, every... And he never accumulates gadgets. And so the real fun of this was, okay, he's in the stairwell, and he's trapped. What does he have? All he's got is a dead body. And then, well, what can you do with a dead body? Well, you can use it as a cushion, and you can leap through the banister. That's the fun of making this movie. You know, once we defined those characteristics for Jason Bourne, was to sort of put him in a situation and then say, all right, how could you get out of it? What would you do if you were Jason Bourne and put yourself in his head? And it's became sort of one of the highlights of the whole process was were the action sequences to try to figure out clever things for Jason Bourne to do, you know, that weren't didn't feel like MacGyver, that were just, you know, he disables somebody with a pen or he grabs the walkie-talkie or in that case he uses the dead body. And a suspense sequence like this, you know, makes me think about editing. And when I think about editing, and it's not just Sar and Chris, but the incredible team that supported them, especially Sar's, you know, main assistant, Liza Espinas, who, like many people in the editing department when in Paris, fell in love with a French person. Uh, but they actually got married, and, and she lives there now. And um, Thomas and Sorn and Peter and Keith... Um, Really, we became like a very close family uh, editing this film. 
and they all contributed enormously um, to the process. It's done. Shut it down. We're about to come up to a shot that is the bookend to the opening shot in the film where Jason Bourne disappears on the dock in Imperia. And again, the you know my independent film roots and Matt Damon's background paid off because I actually went out and filmed this with Matt and there's nobody else there, there's no crew. It's just Matt and myself. Um, it's during our Christmas break when everybody else had gone back to America and as I'm panning left, he's just running around to be out of the shot and we timed it so we'd be there right at dusk and there's no lighting equipment involved in that. The Treadstone project has actually already been terminated. It was designed primarily as a sort of advanced... This room, by the way, doesn't exist. This also was created by Peter Donan. We were filming in Prague, and it would seem simple enough to find a, a room like this, but it just didn't exist. There are actually some other rooms that Peter created that I didn't talk about, like the Treadstone Cafeteria. You know, uh, to me, that's where cinema's going. Here we are. It's a helicopter shot in uh, Greece, in... Uh, Mykonos. So here we are in Mykonos. We actually had to shut down production and then come back a couple of months later, just seasonally, because we, we were shooting in the winter. Obviously, we was talking about how cold we were, and um, this you know, needed to be shot in the summer. And we also wanted you know, Matt's hair to have grown out a little bit. And obviously, we, we changed Franca's hair. But with a woman, it's easier because you, you can use a wig. To me, the thing about this scene is these aren't like two lovers who have been separated who are being reunited. This, to me, is actually the start of their relationship. Like the whole movie, you've been learning about these characters, they've been together. But because of, of the situation they were in, they were never really free to explore their romance. The book ends with Marie, he, he, he tells her actually his name is David, and she says, hello, David. And that's, those are the last two words in the, in the novel. And you realize, like, at the end of the book is really the start of, of their relationship. And so that's why they're hugging there, and it's, it's not this hugely dramatic kiss, because in the book, it's the whole setup of the movie is that when it's over these people can have have a love story but but not while the movie's happening the moby song at the end is a uh, julianne kelly special you know my music supervisor did go with me and uh who once again has proven herself to just be the perfect music supervisor before i go on with the thanks you know i guess i i want to verbally dedicate this film to Robert Ludlum and Claire Hammond. Robert, who not only whose book the movie was based, but who, who took a chance on me, on a kid who came to visit him and said he wanted to turn his most popular novel in, into a movie. And Claire Hammond, who worked tirelessly on the film and you know was just an incredible moral support to me and to the rest of the team and kept the spirits of everybody up. I'd like to thank, first and foremost, uh, my girlfriend, Catherine Marsh, who, who also worked on the film and helped me through an extraordinarily challenging production. Um, Universal Pictures, obviously, 
for taking a chance on a indie filmmaker and, and giving me the budget and the resources and supporting me all the way through the process. Uh, and specifically, Allison Brecker and Stacy Snyder. Kevin Misher, who uh, was president of the studio when the film was greenlighted, and then Mary Perrin and Scott Stuber, who took over for him, and who, though it was not their baby, supported it like it was. In terms of the crew, I mean, I think I've hit a lot of the, the French crew who uh, really I could not have done the, the film without, but again, I'm, you know, it's, it's actually very challenging to do this voiceover and to try to keep up and... and um, before you know it, you're, you know, the, the new scenes come on and you got to stop what you're talking about. But, uh, you know, I really need to thank Dan Val, uh, who's my production designer, my confidant, helped me with the script, helped me with Paris, helped me, you know, keep uh, my morale up. Just could not have asked for more during production and during post-production Peter Donan, who, you know, is my visual effects supervisor who, who worked miracles, and Sar Klein and Chris Rouse, my editors, who I could not have, have asked for better people, and John Powell, who pulled together an amazing score, and obviously Oliver Wood and Danny Mandel who shot the movie, and Don Burgess as well. And, you know, I think about, you know, my first assistant director, Luke Etienne, who you know, was responsible for, for so much of the, the texture that you see on screen, and his assistant, Claire, and Hilda, who is our den mother, and Gilles Sigurel, who did my props, and the most incredible focus puller I've ever had the luxury of working with, Mary Law uh, Pierre, who not only was incredible, but had fingers small enough to work with the... Uh, Panavision uh, ultralight camera and could reload it extremely fast because regular sized fingers really can't fit in there. And my uh, my key grip, Jean-Pierre Deschamps, who really became one of my closest friends, and having Mary Law on my side and, and Jean-Pierre behind me, you know, I, I felt uh, really like I was in a protective cocoon. In terms of my, my actors, you know, obviously Matt Damon and Franca Patente, you know, were, were incredible, not only on screen, but uh, behind the scenes. Chris Cooper and, and Brian Cox basically did all of their scenes in five days, just the greatest. Clive Owen, we gave him very little dialogue and he hit it out of the park. Adewale, you know, inspired me to develop enough material to basically, I could have cut together a movie that was just about Wambosi. The people that worked for Chris Cooper, Gabe Mann and Walton Goggins and Josh Hamilton and, and Julia Stiles, who were incredible and just dedicated young actors. And then all of my, my overseas actors, you know, from Italy or so and, and from England, Tim and from France, Dennis and Nikki. And, and you know, I, I got actors coming from all over the world to do this film. The stunts that were incredible done by Nick Powell and my second unit photography by Alexander Witt, they both made me look a lot smarter than I probably am. In the art department, Dan had put together an amazing team run by uh, Bettina, and um, I always loved going to visit them there and felt like they were never going to let me uh, fall on my face. All of the 
casting people who helped me, Joseph Middleton in L.A. and Natalie Sharon in Paris and Kate Dowd in London. And finally, I want to thank uh, Robert Ludlam for taking a chance on me and, and letting me turn his book into a movie.